At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists. Like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Welcome, everyone, to the SI Media Podcast. I am your usual host, Jimmy Trena. Special episode this week. Uh, I am taking Christmas off, so I'm turning this entire episode over to my colleague, also one of my producers, Harry Swartout, for a special year-end little pop culture SI Media podcast. Going to take you through a lot of uh, fun stuff, books, movies, TV. Harry, what is this episode going to be all about? Well, you know, it is the holiday time and people are spending time with their family. And so you might want to share with your family some really great sports pop culture from 2018. Maybe some movies or books or maybe you don't want to spend that time with your family and you can hide in these. I was going to say, I would look at this as an opportunity to duck out from the family. You're going to cover uh, books, movies, TV, best of the rest, correct? Yes. Pop culture. I, I think there's a little bit of something for everyone. We've got podcasts, recommendations, and of course, uh, great TV shows like The Shop get to talk about LeBron. I was it's interesting cuz I was going to say I can't really offer an opinion on books or movies, but the two best things I saw on TV this year were the LeBron's The Shop on HBO and the Andre the Giant documentary on HBO. Those would be my two contributions to the show. I will be back as always next week. So uh give it a listen, enjoy it and uh check out all the old SI Media podcast episodes in the archives. Good stuff there. Comedian Bill Burr Tony Reale was one of the best ones of the year. John Cena was one of the best podcasts this year. So when you're done listening to this episode and you get to the end of it and you need more, it's all there for you. And now here is my colleague taking over this week on the SI Media Podcast, Harry Swartout. All right, let's talk TV. Around the table, we have... Robin Lundberg, host of SI Now, all-around humanitarian. Priya Desai, I'm a video producer. Jessica Smetana, I'm also a video producer, and I'm a co-host of Most Valuable Podcast. Which is a good podcast y'all should listen to. It's very funny. It is. Robin, what do you have for us? Well, I'll stay on brand. I have uh, The Shop, presented by LeBron James and crew on HBO. In the barbershop. There's going to be one guy that's not even going to get a haircut. You've been here since 8 a.m. This is 6 o'clock in the afternoon. You still ain't got your haircut? And he's sitting on the couch, and he's like, you next? No, I'm good. 
convince us? Why, why do you like the shop? Well, you know, first of all, I like it, and it's not really from a LeBron standpoint. Of course, that's the entryway. I wouldn't have watched it otherwise. But there were some interesting things that, that otherwise um, I, I didn't know I, I would be into. Like, one was an anecdote into personalities and even things on the court. Victor Oladipo was on one episode, and he was talking about his time in Oklahoma City and basically how much the noise can get to a player. Like he said there was a moment where he would look to the sideline and actually see and wonder if people were talking about him. So he thought maybe they're saying, oh, he can't shoot. He can't play off of Russell Westbrook. So it was a little bit of a window into how much these guys actually think about that stuff, which you don't, you don't give credence to or attention to. And, you know, Markel Fultz, for instance, what he's going through right now, I wonder how much everybody talking about him is weighing on him. So I thought that was really insightful from Oladipo, who went on to, you know, kill it in his next stop. Then there was the, the LeBron talk with uh, Maverick Carter and everybody else about their upbringing. And you got a little bit of a window into what makes those guys tick beyond, you know, being a, a basketball player, beyond the, the business ventures. And then finally, I, I thought it was kind of cool and a little bit of maybe a peek into the future that Drake was on there to give his interview post Pusha T, which he hadn't talked about before. And generally that would be for a different venue or platform. So the, the fact that it was that platform is just another way that these guys, it, in a way, it's not great for us, but they, they realize they can circumvent the traditional media and, and get their message out in a different way. So there were just a, a few different layers to it that I it was better than I thought it was going to be going in. I was like, all right, I'll check it. In fact, I didn't watch it right away. I, I saw other people talk about it, and that's what made me watch it, and I liked it more than I actually thought I would because my LeBron fandom is based from him being a great basketball player. I mean, it's great all the other stuff he's done, but the origin of it is from basketball, so it was cool to see the other stuff. So it seems like it's kind of a new kind of access to these players and people, but my my question is, it all kind of hinges on, do you like LeBron? What if you're a LeBron hater? Can you still enjoy the show? Well, I mean, if you were that much of a LeBron hater, probably not, right? Like, if you're going, like, I dislike this guy actively... But if you're not, a, you can like it without being a LeBron fan or, you know, tangentially interested. Because some of the conversations on the first episode were just, like, interesting from a sociological level. You know, how does a, a kid who grew up really without parents in, in a lot of ways, without a dad and, and you know, in and out of, of different houses in an environment where, you know, there wasn't that much support. And then all of a sudden, he has the, the entire world. How, how does that shape your worldview? That's just intriguing to me in general. And then some of the other people that are on there aren't LeBron James, like John Stewart was on the first episode. Uh, that, that gives you a nice uh, Venn diagram of interests, I would imagine. And, and like I said, you know, uh, Drake on, on another one, and Snoop, and a whole bunch of, you know, people from, from different realms. Uh, Elena Della Don ha had some good stuff to say as well. What if you're a huge Drake lover, but you hate LeBron? <laughs> Ooh. Because that uh, was a good – I mean, I remember – I didn't watch that one. I've only watched the first two. But it was all over Twitter. I had to text my brother and be like, what's going on? <laughs> Catch me up. Well, you, you were hiding a child, right? I mean, that was <laughs> – he hadn't responded to that whole thing from the, the push of this. So um, – it, he waited a while, and that's what I, I found sort of fascinating is that was the, the way he wanted to get that message out. So it was clearly crafted. Look, these guys don't 
It's like when um Ice Cube and Dr. Dre made Straight Outta Compton. That you know it was a good movie, but they painted themselves like heroes. <laughs> so in, in this venue, of course, they're going to come out looking good. But I I think you know if you're interested in the the subject matter, they did a good job of answering or at least uh, giving you sound bites on, on all the relevant topics. When I was on, uh, I co-hosted SI Now with you one week, and I think it was when it premiered. And I was like, this is great, the things that they're talking about. But then I wondered, like, is this sustainable, right? It feels a little bit like a roundtable, and I hate roundtables. While we're so, doing a roundtable. <laughs> well, the table's yeah, not exactly round. Meta. It's more like a... It's an ovoid it's chair. Yeah. <laughs> like, is it going to... So I'm assuming that it's like morphing into different things now. So I wonder, like, what is this next? Like, where does this go? That's a good question. I think that's the reason they haven't had a bunch of them. There's only been a couple. Yeah. So in order for it to have maximum effect, I think they need the cast to be strong and the topic matter to be strong. And that would get watered down if it was like episodic on a weekly basis. Do you hear about it a lot, though, since the first week? Or I heard- but well, I think Drake? there's only been two. Oh, there's only been two. There's oh, only been two, so that's the point. So the first, it was the first week, and then there was the Drake so episode. So I didn't watch the Drake episode. So, so I'm not behind. Yeah. <laughs> I think right. they're clearly trying to make news with each episode, in a sense, too. Every month, is it? I, I don't know what the release schedule is, to be honest with you, because it's just been those two. Huh. Um, I'm not a LeBron hater, but mm. I'm also not really a basketball fan at all. So is there anything in the show for someone who doesn't, really might not care too much about the basketball storylines and... I am a little intrigued by the Drake stuff, but not really something that would make me tune in. Sure. Uh, I mean, like I said, uh, there's the insight into the athlete and the athlete experience. There was the, the you know, explanation of, of, you know, what it's like to try and mold this empire that they have and, and deal with the, the scrutiny that they have. So I think that's just interesting on a human level. And then it's not just, you know, basketball, too, or it's not just um, basketball in the sense that it's, you know, what do you do when the shot clock is winding down? It's Elena Deladon, you know, telling about how, uh, you know, women players are viewed and, and perceived and having to break through some of those notions. So a lot of that stuff, I think, is just relatable, either if you're a sports fan or just from a human interest standpoint. I wonder if other athletes are going to kind of jump on this. Like, you're, they're able to, like, LeBron has really paved the way to be like, I'm going to paint my own story and I'm going to create my own narrative. And not, and this is not good for us, but not <laughs> really depend on the media for to to be the conduit. Yeah, I mean, he's like sports. He's trying to be sports Oprah in this sense, right? But yeah. I, I mean, I, I think it's hard. I mean, it's it's easy in the sense that guys can get their own message out there. I mean, like even social media, Twitter. You know, I, I could see them going, "All right, why do I need to have a, this particular platform if I can just." you know, put it out there myself. Mm-hmm. But the, I, I think the one difficulty is LeBron is so universally recognizable, r- regardless of whether you're a basketball fan or not, that I wonder how many people come to even check you out if you don't have somebody like that a- as the entry point. Well, I think it depends on who he has on the show. He's had a re- he's done a really good job. Now that I know I've only, I haven't missed more than one episode. He's done a really good job bringing like a very well-rounded group of people like John Stewart that was that was a surprise a good surprise but that was a surprise I think it was strategic too you know it was, everything he does is strategic. yeah yeah but I mean it was for Let's that I think it's for that exact reaction right oh he's got John Stewart on and then John Stewart is so um intuitively he understands how to direct these conversations so it was like that had a couple hosts right because you know they were going the way they wanted to go and then he was flipping it from the other perspective which just led to 
maybe conversations that wouldn't have been had. All right, so that's Robin Lundberg on The Shop. Next, we got Priya. What do you have for us? I'm doing the Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling, also known as Glow. Hello, ladies. I'm Sam Sylvia, and this is Glow. Sorry, what's Glow? Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling. Are you hiring actors to play wrestlers, or are we the wrestlers? Go! <laughs> yes. Two seasons. Um, has my one of my favorite actresses on Allison Brie. I love her. I feel like we could be friends. So Allison, if you're ever in New York. She was great in Mad Men. She was great in community. She's amazing. And she's I could go on about her forever. It's a whole different podcast. Um, but it's a it's based on a real life group of women who created Glow. And uh, I actually watched a documentary that came out a while ago even before I knew they were doing the show. And I'm a big documentary fan, and someone recommended it to me. I, I really enjoy it. Well, I enjoyed it so much that the first season I watched in, like, two weeks. And they were actually going to cancel it after the first season because nobody was, like, really – people were – there was a lot of, like, re good reviews, and, and people were talking about it, but that weird, like, Netflix, like, logarithm, like, people weren't getting it in whatever – and there was a huge, like, outrage, and now they ended up having a second season and a third season. But it just basically follows the paths of these women who end up doing something that's pretty unique. Yes. Yeah, so the, the question I have is, is you, you mentioned that there's, like, a real-life glow. Um, how much of the show is, you know, kind of adheres to the actual history versus how much of it is, is manufactured for drama and entertainment? So going in... From the interviews I've read, all the actresses initially were like, we're going to, you know, we're going to lightly base it off these characters, but I really want to um, kind of make this my own. But then a majority of them took a lot of their characteristics and their storylines with them. There are some like bigger plots that are obviously made to keep this the, the storyline going on. But as far as like the characters, both the wrestling characters and their real life characters, those are are pretty, um, I wouldn't say spot on, but they're they're respectful. What is the target audience? Is it wrestling fans? Is it, you know, people who just like that that sort of, you know, television series? What, what is it? So there was a, there's one of our colleagues, Dave Sepperson, and I were talking. I, I came in and I was like, he was like, what'd you do this weekend? I was like, I watched Glow for 10 hours. <laughs> and he was like, that's a great show. And he's a huge wrestling fan, huge. His wife is not a huge sports fan. He's like, my wife loved it. So it's one of those things where you like both sports and non-sports and wrestling fans and non-wrestling fans can really get into it because it's it's also just produced very well and the acting is really good and there's there's a lot of characters that you really root for. For a show that's based on reality and real people, where do you think the show will go next because you said there's been two seasons and now there's going to be a third season. Do you think they're going to have to start kind of wavering from the real people that they're basing it off of or where is it going to go now yeah the it ended in the late 80s it got well it was off of television by then and I, I think if the show continues to be a hit obviously hollywood wants to make money there's definitely an ability to because they take a lot of things that were happening then and they'll weave it in so they'll talk about women's rights reproductive rights and um they talk about casual racism a lot of things that we talk about today which is slightly depressing so it's very relatable um 
So I think that they are able to use the storylines and then capture what's happening historically in the moment and create storylines from that. So if they wanted to take this out for a while, I think they, they definitely could. Because the ladies did continue wrestling. They just did it off of television in different formats. Yeah, they, it could become a show called Divas. And that would talk oh, about yeah. the Attitude Era ladies. And I, I'd watch that too. I'd watch that too. It's kind of intriguing to me because it's not, you know, the way you're describing it, it's not reality TV. It's, it's quasi-reality TV. I mean, it's scripted, right? It's And it's it's well done television. So don't let the word diva scare you. Mm-hmm. I've seen a few episodes on E. It's fine. <laughs> but it's not drama like, oh my God, you're sleeping with my boy. No, actually, no, that, that is a, a plot line. <laughs> but it's very... It's more the fabulous moolah hit me with a chair. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of good nuances and there's a lot of... Um, the storylines, rather, are very nuanced, and I think, and they're very well written. They've got great writers, so it's not like it's not corny. The reason I stayed away from it initially, and I ended up just binging for a weekend because I don't really do anything on the weekends to begin with, is <laughs> I thought it was going to be like cheesy, corny, like eighties, nineties wrestling that I grew up with. I didn't want to see that, but it's very thoughtful, and the acting's really good. So I think that um, if you're if you're a fan of good television. And you want to see something that is historical in nature, as it, the fact that it actually happened, then I would I would check it out. Excellent. So that's free to sigh for Glow. It's on Netflix. It's on Netflix. You can get it all right now, two seasons, right? Yes. And the third season, on its way. Jess, what you got? Uh, yeah. So this, this year, I really enjoyed the Hard Knocks season with the Cleveland Browns. Adios, Cleveland. 48. 30. Stay late, arrive early. It's the only way to get better. Rookie quarterback Baker Mayfield has seen the light. I think that Hard Knocks uh, has been struggling the last few years to really find find itself. Um, a lot of the tropes of the past, whatever, 10 or 15 years have just been replayed over and over. You get like the sprinkler montage you get like the the cars rolling up to practice camp, um, but this year I think there were really solid characters in this season, and I think it kind of gave me hope for the future of Hard Knocks. Um, I think the the producers got either lucky or however you want to say smart about choosing the Browns because they had a first round, first overall pick rookie quarterback coming in and Baker Mayfield, and he's someone who's shown a lot of personality throughout his college career and he's some he's someone that I think audiences really wanted to get to know um and then of course it's the Browns so their entire front office and coaching staff is kind of a dumpster fire and being able to see that behind the scenes I think was a really um fascinating as a sports fan so did it play kind of like a bad soap opera like what were you tuning in to watch them fail yeah like like, were you turning in to uh, watch them fail not really. And it's I'm not I'm I'm not a Browns fan. I'm actually a Steelers fan, so they're division rivals, but I I was tuning in more to see the characters in the show and kind of see like, you know, you you've heard stories about how Hugh Jackson is incompetent and, you know, everyone knows Greg Williams from Bounty Gate and having this this take you behind the scenes and see their personalities and what they're like as coaches, I think was actually very inf- informative as a sports fan. Like I you can actually see firsthand 
how Hugh Jackson's running his practice and see, you know, judge for yourself if he actually knows what he's doing or not. And that's it's pretty cool to see that behind the scenes. As long as that show's been on the air, I would agree it's sort of been like team and character dependent because it's less of a wow, look where we're getting the, right. this access. So did they do anything from a production standpoint that made it stand out aside from just having Baker Mayfield, having the Hugh Jackson story and everything like that? No, I, I honestly think that um, they kind of play the hits when it comes to producing it. They know like the hard knocks bread and butter is like finding those two training camp players who might be a little weird or interesting that you want to root for and then finding the two guys that are going to get cut at the end of the, the season. Um, and I think this year they just picked the right people and made the right choices with those storylines and it made it the show overall a better product. And of course, there was tons of slow mo. I imagine. Oh, Just, yeah, I mean, of course. Everything. Of course, and like those are. I Leaf think. Leaf I think. Yeah, <laughs> those are the weaker, weaker parts of the series that, um, they like the formula. I think they could almost lose entirely or just change, but um, in that way it wouldn't rely so heavily on characters, and they could actually make some stylistic choices that would make a better show. But I think this year, since they did have the characters, it still worked. I didn't watch it this year. I actually didn't watch last year either. Last year was bad. <laughs> that's what I heard. I think that's so. I was gonna. I, I what I was curious is like I've become in the last few weeks a huge Baker Mayfield fan, and like I love his just brazen swag. Like he just doesn't care mm-hmm. in the sense that like he's gonna say what he wants to say, and he, there's so many people out there. I don't know if you guys saw Deion Sanders kind of come down on him. Yeah. And Baker's like, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. So I respect that. And I like his beard game. <laughs> it's very impressive. So should I go back and watch? Like, does he really come out? Or are we seeing his personality really come out now? Um, I think now that we're on, the NFL season's almost over, I think it almost is more interesting watching it now and seeing that he wasn't even the number one quarterback yeah. in the room at the start of the season. Um, but I think his personality was really starting. I think for a lot of NFL fans that didn't really – you know, don't watch college football or weren't paying attention to his college story at Oklahoma. That was kind of their first exposure to him and their first exposure to um, the other rookies on the team. And I think it's almost more interesting now to go back and see how different things were like 10 weeks ago when the season started than it is now. And Lee Schreiber is narrating again. Yeah, of course. We're recording a podcast. I'm, I'm, re- <laughs> I'm watching Ray Donovan right now, so maybe like once I'm done with the season. Oh, you're just going to have a, a Lee schreiber yes. yeah. You can watch it. Oh, what was he in? It was like X-Men. He was, he was terrible in, oh, X-Men Origins Wolverine, oh, which no, almost retroactively oh, ruined oh, my childhood. I, <laughs> disgrace. I'm sorry I even <laughs> mentioned it. Um, so that is uh, Hard Knocks, the seminal show on HBO. Jess recommends that. Uh, so that gives us two HBO shows. I'm going to add a second Netflix show to the mix. Uh, we already had Glow. I'm giving you marching orders. We've got commercials, Super Bowl, the movie, Drumline. We don't take anything but the best. Two things gonna happen. You gonna kick somebody's ass, or you gonna get your ass kicked. And it is about a marching band, which is a sport. It is certainly a sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I will talk about why. So, Marching Orders is, uh, they're 12 minute, they're really short episodes on Netflix, and they follow the HBCU uh, Bethune Cookman, and they have a famous marching band, and they're, uh, you know, world renowned for their marching band. It's not necessarily as buttoned up as some of the other, like, prof- you know, not professional, but some of the other, like, famous marching bands. They do kind of things like really tight motions. 
Bethune Cookman is no, better known for having like kind of bombastic performances with a lot of dance and a lot of rhythm and a lot of cool things going on. Uh, and this starts before the season even starts in Daytona Beach, which is where they are in the summer for band camp. So this is a one time at band camp story kind of thing. And uh, Academy Awards for sweating to everyone because it is in Florida in the middle of the summer and they're wearing black and it's not okay. Sounds miserable. Everyone is sweating. But it, it's, it's, it plays kind of like a reality show, like you know any kind of uh, show where you put a bunch of people in a room and see what happens. Uh, but it's kind of the, – the pressure isn't applied by the usual reality show tricks. Instead, it's applied by having to be in a marching band. And so you have the 14 carat dancers – and who's going to make the team. And, and, and there's a big section about, um, you know, kind of, are you going to make the cut? And they're very vicious with their cuts. If you made it last year, that doesn't mean you make it again this year. So they cut a lot of seniors and juniors, and that's, that's a big thing. Uh, but it also has some really interesting um, social dynamic commentary where they have, uh, for instance, the, the color guard. These girls try out. They get in, but they don't have enough... Uh, size XL uniforms for all of the girls and they can't it would take months to get them ordered because apparently marching band uniforms take forever thing I learned and so he basically says look the 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 band director who's uh, kind of a tough love guy his name is Donovan Wells he says look y'all made it we don't have any uniforms for you we can't use you and so he like extra cuts another few people who were good enough to get in and this kind of uh size narrative runs throughout because uh there's they follow one of the the dancers who basically is on probation uh for her weight yes it's yeah it's 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 tough it sounds um, like my sororities <laughs> but yeah so that's it, it that kind of will give you a feel of what's going on but the the there's also kind of like the 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 nougaty center is there's a, a mellophone player who's reconnecting with his mom through the band and he's been estranged from her and so that's kind of like that. Show sounds very dramatic. There's a lot of stuff. It is, going but on. here's my problem with it: it's only 12 minutes, and it's a yeah. little frustrating that they, like they must have had a bunch of footage on the cutting room floor, and this, I'm assuming it got made and maybe Netflix suggested cut it down. I don't know who decided to cut it to 12 minutes, but I thought that was really problematic because I would watch one episode and then be and just feel like I didn't really get a chance like right when I got into the story the credits would roll yeah and I, I think the the thing that I feel like they were probably trying to do is get people who would never try to be like oh I'll, I'll wait 12 minutes yeah that that I mean when he said that I would be more likely to just kind of watch it than I would if I you know it's some of these shows that even people say are the best shows ever like the the wire and and shows like that okay calm down well, whatever <laughs> sopranos an example of some a show that someone would say is the best show ever it, it always feels like such an endeavor to me I'm like I don't know if I can do that like, I don't have seven seasons yeah. in me so 12 minutes all right I mean I, I could check it out it's like the you know the trend with some of the albums you know like Daytona or uh, 444 you know like the way that they're they're shorter it makes them easier to, to digest so I could see that being the incentive but i do think that does hurt them later on once you've hooked them you kind of it, it, it is like you yeah. turn it on and it's like, the credits already tell the story don't worry about if the story's good enough people will watch the yeah. whole episode yeah and i'm hoping maybe the second season they'll they'll decide maybe to not. uh do it a little bit differently and there's there definitely could and should be a second season because the show stops right after their first competition <laughs> so there's a lot more stuff they could be following and doing and watching them do so i'm I, that that is actually one of the, the one of the few flaws I would find with the show is like I want more marching band. 
I, people, yeah, okay, I get no, it. No, you're right. But marching band. There I want more cool no. band. Is it, is it the HBCU factor that brings that out a little bit too? Like, a, you know, kind of the, the culture that's brought to the music? Yeah, I mean, so my my wife was, uh, was in the marching band in high school and college. Mm-hmm. She was in Northwestern's marching band. And they're one of the more buttoned up kind, so it's very kind of like drills. And you do, and you march in a circle, and you might make a cool shape. There's a lot of like dance breaks. And mm-hmm. of course, there's the constant dancers and color guard for the band so the 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 it kind of and the competition at least the one we saw in the in the last few episodes of this season also was instead of just everybody goes out and does their thing there's a stand section where you do like hype you get you know you try to get the crowd hyped and then there's like a a and that's more call and response and then you get a uh like a on the field section and there's a lot of kind of back and forth between the crowd and the band which i I'd say is probably stems from that kind of thing. Yeah. And I wonder if they're, if they do do, are they, are they doing a second season? I haven't seen it confirmed anywhere, but I don't know why they wouldn't. And Netflix is really weird about announcing season twos of things. I wouldn't mind more of like a historical aspect sewn in. Yeah. Yeah. That would explaining why it's like different there, why it's such a big deal or why they picked that school or anything right. like that. Yeah. Well, it just seemed a little bit lazy. I, I'm the for editing that. of it. Why are band directors and conductors such hard asses? What was that J.K. Simmons movie? Oh yeah, Whiplash. Yeah. Whiplash. <laughs> I love that movie. <laughs> I mean, he the the I guess it would be because they have like a hundred and something college kids. They have to make do one thing, and I imagine the only way you do that is if you absolutely go Iron Fist on. Them. <laughs> yeah. Because Reminds I can't get college kids to do anything. Reminds me of um. Did you see the new season of? Last Chance You, also on Netflix. Mm-mm. This season for me, just like I would much rather watch the marching band show than that season or than Last Chance You because this the coach head coach was just such a he was such an asshole. I, <laughs> I could like after three episodes, I was like, man, I can't listen to this guy drop thirty more f bombs. It's funny me. you were searching for the right word and then that one still <laughs> came out. <laughs> I was trying to find the right word and I couldn't. Like he was yeah, just, he was really mean. He was a really mean coach. So that was. Uh, Marching Orders, it's on Netflix now. Thank you guys so much for being here. Give me your social handles. Robin. At Robin Lundberg. Priya. At Priya Desai. Jess. At Jessica underscore Smetana. I'm Harry Swartout. That's at Harry Swartout on Twitter. Up next, best of the rest. All right, we're back with the best of the rest. That's everything that doesn't fit into TVs, books, or movies, so we're going to get weird. Uh, let's go around and introduce our panelists. My name is Jarrell Harris. I am the associate producer, well, NBA producer at Sports Illustrated. I'm Charlotte Wilder. Uh, I'm a senior writer, podcast host, and host of the Wilder Project at Sports Illustrated. Oh, and the podcast is Most Valuable Podcast, and you should all listen to it. Definitely listen to it. <laughs> and my name's Johnny Mosher. I'm a production assistant for SI Now. And our youngest hire, he's the baby of the group. So, <laughs> Johnny, Sorry, how old are you? Whopping 22 years old. Wow. Oh, he incredible. taught me what yeet meant. Did not know. Yeah. <laughs> that'll happen. Skirt, skirt, indeed. Okay. <laughs> so let's let's start off. Jarrell, what do you have for us today? Um, I'm going to run through a couple sneakers that everyone should buy. Okay. I definitely want to hear. All right. What you so, got? Um, one of them is definitely the Nike Kyrie 5. But when it comes down to sneakers, uh, I would say like Kyrie's like up there, number one. Uh, and sneaker sales, LeBron has like the most. But when it comes to like cool colorways and like what kids really want, 
I'm definitely going to recommend Kyrie. Why is that? What's special about him? I think people relate to Kyrie more. Mm. Like, no one, not everyone can be like 6'8 and like 270 pounds. It's like, it's like the same thing with like Seven Curry. Like, I can see myself doing that kind of stuff and like I can wear his sneakers. But LeBron's sneakers are like very heavy. I can't do that. Like LeBron's too good. You yeah, can't he's do. too good. Now I do have a question. Does Kyrie's shoes work on a round earth? <laughs> do they hold yes. you to a round earth? I know yeah. they work on flat earth. Yes, but I would say yes, they do. Uh, the traction on the sneaker is really incredible. Um, technology wise, it like hits on everything that you need. You're not going to be sliding across the floor that much. It really contains your foot. So what would you say they look like? Because I, I know this is a podcast, so uh, you can't see them. We're not showing you to them. Yeah. But like, if you had to describe them to somebody, what would you say they like? I would say they are really uh, casual. Um, most of his sneakers look kind of the same. But I can see a lot of NBA players are doing that. Like Kevin Durant, had his past few like sneakers have all like looked the same. Like They want to feel like they want to be comfortable in their own shoes. So my question about Kyrie's shoes is I look at them and I think – I mean, ever since he came out with the cereal editions, mm-hmm. um, all I can think of is that they look kind of like dinosaurs and cereal. Like, they're yeah. very, they feel very childlike mm-hmm. in a really fun way. Is there another, you know, another uh, basketball player or another shoe that you think is sort of playful in that same way as Kyrie's? Um, I would say uh, Paul George is really big on that. I spoke to him last week, mm-hmm. and he does a lot of collabs with, like, PlayStation. Oh, so cool. Kids love that. I and love that. He's become, like, one of the best signature sneaker stars in the NBA now because of, like, all the collabs he does. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, what I'm curious about, too, is I'm someone who is not as much or into the shoe game as I want to be because I think shoes are obviously super fashionable and awesome, but... What confuses me is more or less the value of shoes. Like how do we not overpay for? Yeah, <laughs> basically, how do you shoe? Yeah. Is this what we're asking? Yeah. Um, I would say read sneaker blogs more often. Um, Those exist. <laughs> yeah, they oh, definitely yeah, do exist. Um, but someone like Michael Jordan, who has, who has like big influence on today's NBA and like sneaker culture in general, like if you know much about his sneakers, they're going to be like everywhere, like walking down Soho in the street. Um, one of the sneakers I was going to talk about was the Air Jordan 11 that's coming out this Saturday. And it's one of the most famous sneakers of all time. It's beautiful. Like, Michael Jordan made it for kids to wear to their prom or graduation. Really? Yeah, he did. I didn't know that. So um, I think his brother-in-law got married, and he brought his groomsmen all Jordan 11s for you could wear it on the wedding day. So oh, pretty cool story that. about that. I'm going to wear those if I ever get married. Yeah, so they're yeah. like sneakers to go with the tux, is yes. what you're saying. So yes, how, how do they... How do how are they so nice? They go with the tux. I need to know. Yes. Uh. Well, this colorway is white and black, and you can wear it with any suit. Um. And patent leather is perfect. Ooh. Are so, you gonna get a pair? Already got a pair. <laughs> <laughs> Team early. Say, Team early. No, he already got one. Yeah. yeah. Jarrell's got the hookup though. <laughs> Seriously. I think I have over 150 or 200 pairs in my closet. Oh my god. Just wait, 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 hold on. Hold that on. might be more than I uh, have owned in my life. You like, live you in New York. Yes, all right. And you have the room for, t- what's your secret, man? I do not have the room. My <laughs> parents, uh, most of my sneakers are at my parents' house. Okay, fair. And I moved out two years ago. <laughs> yeah. So, but most of the boxes in my room, uh-huh. in my old room, it's 
It's ridiculous. It's just you don't want to walk in there. How many pairs of shoes like do you wear on an average basis? The sad thing about this, I only wear like three pairs of sneakers. Oh, I think no. so. They're like they're 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 discussion pieces. So when people yeah. walk in your house, there's like the Iron Throne, but shoes. Yeah, it is just a beautiful <laughs> throne of shoes. My dad usually he's like, "Yeah, you got a museum back there." Yeah. Like, but Seriously. a lot of people ask me if I'm ever going to sell my sneakers, but. I just I I don't. No, they're nice to have. Yeah, I mean, I feel that I feel that way about sometimes they're things that you care about a lot. You don't have to use them to get pleasure from them. It's like you know that you have them and they bring you joy yeah. and that's enough. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite shoe that you own? Uh, I'm uh, like trying to see what okay. he's wearing right now. <laughs> they're tight. They're fly. Adidas. But um really my cool. favorite shoe of all time Keep is run the... DMC. Hmm. <laughs> all right. This is a story. I haven't bought a pair of sneakers in three years. I haven't had to because they sent me a bunch, you know. But the Air Jordan Three Black Cements came out this past February. It's my favorite sneaker of all time, and they didn't send me a pair. But I was like, "There's no way I'm not gonna get this." So it was really special when I finally got it, and mm. it felt better than actually getting a sneaker that's like free, basically. But I was like, "I actually love this shoe. I'm gonna wear it every day." So, so you had to work for it. Yeah, definitely did. <laughs> I love that. I love that. So, it was cool. I'm just, it's Charlotte. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have a list I put together of good people in sports media to follow on Twitter. Uh, because Which we desperately need in these trying times. Yeah. I mean, Twitter, you know, I need it. I rely on it a lot for getting my work out there for, you know, if, if people know what to expect from my voice and I can build that up on Twitter. It's less weird when I drop a story and everyone's like, why did you interview Gritty? And, but instead they're like, oh, of course you interviewed Gritty. Uh, <laughs> but it can also be kind of a garbage fire and there are a lot of really bad takes. So I've put together a list of some people who have either good or funny or interesting things to say regularly um, who are authentic and who I don't, I don't look at any of these people's tweets and roll my eyes and think, oh my God, this person's insufferable, which is a really high bar actually. Um, at SI, I think some of the people who I generally learn a lot from or who make me laugh on a daily basis, my podcast co-host, of course, uh, Jessica Smetana. Her Twitter is at Jessica underscore Smetana. Um, As featured on our last episode. Yeah. <laughs> so she's she's very funny and um, tons of stuff about college football and NFL um, that she'll, she'll, she'll teach you stuff as you're laughing at her jokes, which I find... Um, to be hard to do and very important uh, when it comes to social media. And uh, Jenny Vrentis and Robert Klemko on the NFL beat, I just, they write stuff that makes me think about the sport in a different way. They give me um, new information all the time and they're pretty funny about it. Uh, so that's always helpful and fun, especially in the fall. Um, Emma Bacalieri on the baseball beat is, she's just, she, she writes about baseball in a way that, um, makes me she brings it to life a little bit which i think is very cool and her twitter is also pretty funny uh and rohan nudkarni uh, my my dude he just has he's the most whacked out tweets and says the funniest stuff and i always appreciate that but then um outside of the building i have a few i'll just sort of run through them by in, I'm from Boston, so the Boston media people that mm-hmm. I get all my local news from. Boston Pride right there. Let's Are you go. from Boston? Oh, yeah, from uh, Mass. Hey, Jarrell, we're surrounded. Oh, yes. Yeah, no, I know. City. 
best. Sorry about all the championships. (laughs) 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 Except I'm not sorry at all. Um, so Nora Princiati at the Boston Globe does uh, is on the Patriots beat, and she is just a rising star. You keep an eye on her. She writes amazing stuff, gives incredible in-game analysis, is funny when she's not doing football stuff, and even often when she is. Um, Doug Kide at Nesson is great. I follow him for you know up to the minute what's going on with the team, and Chad Finn. His handle is uh, at Globe Chad Finn, and he just does incredible media coverage like he really has his finger on the pulse he knows what's going on nationally too not just in boston but it's fun for me because there's always a boston slant to it uh and then at the ringer there are three women there that i just think are hilarious um which is haley o'shaughnessy whose handle is haley something um <laughs> megan schuster who's meg schuster and stephanie snowden who's you got snowed um and they're just they're really clever um, Meg does a lot of golf stuff. Haley does a lot of NBA stuff. Stephanie does a lot of gaming stuff and video. Uh, and it's just fun to see people talking to each other and, and laughing and, and giving you kind of what you want when you tune in. I'm like, oh, cool. That's a Haley tweet. I know it's going to be mm-hmm. good. Um, you get psyched for the tweets. Yeah, totally. And then, uh, you know, Bill Barnwell for NFL stuff at ESPN, uh, Harry Lyles Jr. and Whitney Medworth, uh, for NFL and NBA at, SB Nation, where I used to work. They're wonderful people. Um, and Hunter Harris at New York Magazine. She is not sports, but I think everyone should follow her because her tweets about movies. Um, Absolute fire. She just falls in love with a different movie like once every two months and then it only like is locked in on it. Um, sorry, this is so long. I'm almost done. Um, <laughs> for non-humans, Gritty, the Flyers mascot. At, I would follow Gritty off yeah. a cliff. Yes, so same. I'm going to follow him on Twitter. At Gritty NHL are the best. He he is this amorphous monster who has the fun. Like today, the Flyers tweeted out Gritty photoshopped onto 90s movies, and he just quote tweeted it and said, "What's a 90s? Can somebody please <laughs> tell me what a 90s? And I was like, "You're perfect." And the Red Sox social media is actually very funny and good. And I actually actually extend the the gritty uh, thing. The whole NHL's Twitter is lit. Mm -hmm. NHL likes to go in on Twitter. So they, if you follow any of their teams, they will have like fights in the middle of games with Twitter. Like totally. Oh yeah. Also the Vegas Knights have an amazing Twitter handle. They do. So any, any, you can't go wrong. Any NHL team. Yeah. uh, Really good tweets. But I do have a question. Mm -hmm. Uh, In these, trying times i, I want to smile who's the what's the one follower that would just make me so happy um i love josh gondelman he's mm. a writer uh a comedian and just he is a dear friend he's probably the nicest man in america but he's able to be kind and earnest on twitter without being saccharine or annoying and i think that that is the finest line to thread um finest needle to thread finest line to walk however the saying goes and he does it repeatedly um he he tweeted something recently that was like i like living in new york because it's suspicious if you're happy and healthy and i was like you know it's just, it's things like they kind of makes you feel better about yourself and he also does these things well he'll sign on and be like hey for the next 10 minutes i'm here for a pep talk if you need one and he just talks people up and i think that that is a kindness and a spirit that is so lacking online and he does it so well that like definitely that 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 would be my my pick I follow a lot of sports accounts on Twitter and mm-hmm. entertainment accounts. So, and I'm looking for something fresh. Yeah. So, 
who do you recommend I should follow for like new takes? Something fresh for new takes. Oh boy. Um, I mean, you should definitely follow our podcast at Most V Podcast. Mm-hmm. There are I some really fresh takes there. Funky fresh. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't gonna say it, but Harry. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, well, and, for sure. Uh, I guess for you as well, my question is, everyone who wants to grow their social media mm-hmm. platform and your social media, Charlotte Wilde, they're, uh, it's unbelievable. Um, Thank you, so we all love it here. And my question more or less is for those trying to improve mm-hmm. their social media, how important is it to follow some of these names that you've mentioned and try to get more creative input from them? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a... That's interesting because when I was starting out, you know, these there there were a bunch of names that I, you know, sort of saw other people following and talking to and I would chime in every once in a while. And like some people would think it was funny and then they would follow me and it's just sort of it's kind of it's more like networking, like you're building if you're authentic and you're true to yourself, um it's harder to mess that up. Like don't try to be someone you're not. And then if you just continue to show up and people like what you have to say people amplify you so yeah i think that following these accounts and sort of chiming in every once in a while or or making it known making your presence known um if you want to grow a following is definitely helpful and important um it's also exhausting (laughs) now we're moving on to johnny mo show johnny what do you got for us all right, so uh, I just want to talk to you guys all about Twitch and uh, athletes oh, more yeah. or less on Twitch. Cause, uh, I don't know anything about this man, and um, I feel so washed, and I need yes, a lesson. me too. It's all right. Let the young guy come yeah, and speak his words. Yeah. Help so, us out. Um, obviously, being a big video game nerd, it just is a whole social media-esque platform for uh people to really relay their messages out to the world while also playing video games. So when I was a kid growing up, uh, probably the height of my video game experience was during the PS2. Shout out to Sly Cooper. Unbelievable game. Miss it dearly. But uh, there there was no Twitch. There was nothing like that. And so um, for me, when I was just interacting with um, like media and I was always a big sports kid growing up, when I would go on YouTube... I would be able to watch highlights of the players, but I can never actually see what they did for fun. And now Twitch gives an element where you can get into the athlete's head and really kind of learn who they are as a person more than just who they are playing. So it's a really cool opportunity to go out there and you can find clips, whether it's on YouTube, whether it's through Twitch specifically, of all these athletes playing the games that they love to play and really just sharing their messages. So I can go out there and watch Gordon Hayward just build bunch of one by ones and just go up and start double pumping people in Fortnite on a regular no basis. I have no idea what any of the words you just said mean. <laughs> yeah. I th- are you, is this still video games? We still doing video games now? Oh, we are. These are all this is big I'm big Fortnite. Fortnite's unbelievable. Okay. As it's sweeping the nation. What am I missing out on Fortnite? Like you, my nephew plays like every day. I'm like, "Can we go outside and play basketball?" But he's right. like, "No way." No, not a chance. You're missing out on everything. So Fortnite, it's all battle royale, so every 100 people fly into the map at once and you got to survive to the end. That's what it's all about. So whether you're playing solo, whether you're playing with your boys and you get the squad together, you just roll through. And uh, it's a lot of fun when you're specifically actually doing stream stuff through Twitch on that front, too. So um, whether it's you doing it with your friends or you watching Ninja play or any of the other ones, uh, TSM Myth, uh, all the big names that are out there right now, uh, you can do that. Or you can watch also like 
Cat and Ben Simmons playing together, and it's a so is wild time. sorry is uh is Twitch you correct me if I'm wrong you pay to watch people's individual streams? Nope, you don't have to. You can personally pay someone if you enjoy watching their content, but you can watch it for free, oh, which okay. is just like anything. So you like you log in and you're like, hey, I want to watch Baker Mayfield play Fortnite, so you just follow that. Yeah, stream, more or less. So the biggest Twitch streamer right now is Ninja, who's big into Fortnite. So what I'll personally do is I'll just log into Twitch, go to Ninja's account. He's almost always streaming because that's his life. Mm -hmm. So you go on, and then you can see him playing. He's either really into the game, and you can tell, or he's listening to music, making out while playing, answering listeners' questions because there's a chat bar, so you can mm. chat things, uh, and that's where you can send money as well. And, okay. Um, really, it's just a whole little community that cool. all together watches these unbelievable video game players play their game, and uh, it's a lot of fun to that's watch. awesome. And, yeah, it's how you learn the games. Um, why do you think NBA players are big into Fortnite and Twitch now? Well, I think these athletes have always been into video games. It's just the side that we don't get to see as fans. So now that it it's something that gives them an opportunity to relax and be themselves, but it's also great for marketing themselves out to fans and really getting out their messages and being normal human beings because a lot of times you'll idolize these athletes as a fan and you don't really know anything about them, but here's the opportunity for cat to go on and start streaming and people are like oh he's really funny he can do all this one-on-one -on -one interaction he can be a really social person and that makes me want to watch him and support him as a fan and support him with the timberwolves and obviously he's playing great now that butler's gone so it's exciting to see mm -hmm. and uh someone like gordon hayward it was really cool when he was going through his old ankle recovery just to be able to go online and watch him play and he was always really cute. He had his little daughter sitting on his lap, and it was it's always fun. And just to see him kind of humanizes him to a certain extent, to know that he's struggling through his injury. He's talking about it a little bit, uh, more playing the game, but you get to know those little bit of inside details and uh, see some of your favorite players do what they love. Now... So you get to you get this kind of cool window into the athletes' lives, and you get to like kind of interact with them even directly if you're using the chat bar. Is there is there one athlete who you gotta recommend? Like you need to go check out. Yeah. Whoever. Who, who's tw whose Twitch is the best Twitch? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, I'm definitely biased. I've mentioned his name already. I really like seeing Gordon uh, Hayward play. He's just unbelievable at the game. Um, as well as Carlton Towns. He's a lot of fun to watch. Um. Something that what about I've... Baker? I'm a big Baker Mayfield guy. You know, I haven't I haven't <laughs> caught Baker. Play. Really? I really haven't, which I'm. Surprised I felt like I've by. seen a a video on Twitter of him playing, and I was like, that seems fun. Uh, it might have fell through uh, my cracks. Yeah. I haven't seen him, but uh, there's a lot of really cool athletes out there, and they all play. Paul George also has had some fun streams, which <laughs> might be a little surprising. Now, can you plant a flag in Fortnite? Because I feel like Baker Mayfield. <laughs> can you grab your crotch in Fortnite? Uh, you can definitely dance. You can definitely dance and show off all the moves. Uh, maybe we should, uh, the new season just dropped, season seven. Mm. So maybe we should uh, write in and see if Epic Games will put in a nice little flag that yeah. we can uh, have some fun with. Ohio State's Twitch. The amount that I do not know is staggering. Same. Yeah, I think we all just learned something. Clearly. I feel so washed. Dude. <laughs> you learned anything, you just got to build one-by-ones and have two pumps. That's all you need. 
Yeah, for sure, man. <laughs> I know what that means. Totes. <laughs> uh, so that was Johnny Mo Show for uh, Fortnite and, and Twitch streams of athletes. I love it. I learned so much. I'll say I, I am contractually obligated to pitch podcasts. I mm-hmm. do podcasting here at SI, and uh, I'm doing one right now. Uh, but I have two true crime sports stories to give to you. Uh, first one uh, is Carruth. Uh, so if, if y'all don't know, Ray Carruth was a receiver for the Panthers in the 90s. And he basically paid a hitman to kill his baby mama. Mm. And it's, uh, this is, this, you know, kind of, if you've ever listened to Serial, which is the only podcast most people have listened to, but if you ever listen to Serial, it's a lot like that, except there isn't the, um, kind of suspense of, like, did, did, did he do it, did he not do it? It's settled law, and it's, it's generally accepted, and there's not really any ambiguity, but it's telling the story of how it happened, and why it happened, and there's these, the, the, the way it sparkles is with the interviews. The interviews are in in depth they're really touching and especially at the end when you meet the child that ray caruth was trying to have killed uh it it'll make you cry it'll just wow it, yeah so it'll it'll so the mother died the kid survived the yes the mother unfortunately passed away her name was sherika adams uh and her story and I, i'm not giving too much away after she was shot she made. She called nine one one, and they have the call. No, oh, Jesus. And no, but she basically gave them all the evidence they needed to get Caruth. Oh my God! So like an amazing story of yeah. uh, of a woman who literally would not say die, and saved her child, because that's that's the only reason that we, you know, that uh, Chancellor Lee, the name of her child, is still around, is because she really fought mm-hmm. for it. Wow. And then my second pod is. Uh, a little bit of a plug. It's uh, it's not MVP, although you should also listen to that. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's not, not true, true crime no. yet. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> well, we do have our true gritty serial. You never know what happens there. I, again, recommend that. But this is Fall of a Titan, and it's the story of Steve McNair and his tragic death. This one kind of is more serial-like insofar as there's a question of, is the crime what the police said it was? So the police said that uh, Jenny Kazami, uh, Steve's uh, lover, basically assassinated him and, and committed suicide. Uh, and the the podcast basically cast down on that. Are we sure? Uh, you know, the, the, the way they go through is they, they kind of try to slowly pick apart what is wrong with the case. And it starts off doing a lot of character work. And sometimes that's a little bit less convincing, but it's more—it's obviously more color, and it kind of gives you a feel for who's around Steve, which mm-hmm. I think is really important. And then it gets into you know more of the actual like, okay, where did where did she get the gun from? Why did she get the gun from here? And is everybody who's telling that part of the story lying? Spoiler alert: kind of are. Everybody is lying. It's like House. Everybody's <laughs> lying. So I recommend both of those incredibly highly. Uh, any questions? Who do, yeah, who does the Caruth podcast? Who, what network or, or journalist is it? I'm glad you asked. So it's the Charlotte Observer and McClatchkey Studios. And oh, the cool. reason that it's one of the reasons that they ha- that, that podcast is so good is because the Charlotte Observer had been covering it when it yeah, happened. Yeah, decades. Yeah, so for 20 years he was in jail, uh, Ray Caruth was. They, they had been, you know, this same, uh, in fact, the same reporter, Scott Fowler. Mm-hmm. 
he's been following the story the whole way himself. And so he had all this archival footage from himself and had built all these uh, relationships over the years. So that's why he was able to get those really great interviews that are kind of blow your mind. That's awesome. Um, I haven't gotten into true crime podcasts that much. I'm more of a Netflix guy, like watch Making a Murder or The Staircase. So can you tell me more about the experience of like actually listening to it instead of like watching? Sure. So, you know, unlike uh, a, a podcast or a, a, a true crime documentary you might see, you obviously can't see the crime scene. So there's a lot of little descriptions of, of, of exactly how things looked, and that's kind of important. But I think the biggest difference is really the fact that you're going to get all your information from people talking to you. And you're kind of a detective in a way because you have to de- determine whether you trust these people. Do you think that person's lying? Do you think this person's lying? Um, and the podcast's, you know, kind of there to help guide you through mm-hmm. that. Like, this person said, you know, that you just heard them say this, but that might not be reliable because we've checked and found why, right? Mm-hmm. And so that can kind of, it's kind of like a, ch- a choose your own adventure. You're the detective, but it's just uh, being beamed directly in your ears. I think that, I think some, you know, documentaries or, or, video true crime stuff can also have that element to it but what i what i think is different like i've been listening to um the wbur podcasts about um the heist at the gardner museum in 1990 and what i like about that true crime podcast is that it's and the mcnair one i've been listening to that also it makes time go by faster so whereas you have to sit down and decide to watch something and that's going to be your like what you do for the next hour like these these podcasts are done so well and the stories are structured in such a way that they're so compelling that they like your train ride becomes shorter or, you know, you're walking the dog. It feels like less of a chore because it's so compelling and, and you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. So the thing that I'm genuinely curious about and anyone at this table can really answer the question is the fact that there's so many true crime podcasts now that are out and about um, after serial and whatnot. So what are the subtle things that make these podcasts that we've brought up? great like what is it about these in particular i mean one of the big things is the reporting it's how how deep did you go because i mean the police did this at some point right with all of these cases and as far as i know every true crime Mm -hmm. podcast that i've listened to the police have already done an investigation and come up with a conclusion so you're gonna have to do more than they did or at least explain more than they did in order to have something worth listening to and that can come in a lot of different ways it can come from the interviews or it can come from really solid reporting and going down there and, and trying to, you know, recreate something that they thought happened in the crime to see what see if it works. Yeah, I think also what you said about the little descriptions. I think what's so uh, it, it makes you think about things about how you see things a little bit differently because they obviously can't show you. So, you know, they'll they'll there'll be these tiny details like the door was mahogany or like the frayed edge of something like the language um without it's it's whether it's flowery without being you know too much or sort of i think the structure is also huge like a a good podcast versus a great podcast a good one can tell you a story a great one will leave you wanting more of that story i mean it's like it's like anything written i think yeah and you can really tell i think a lot of uh about how well a true crime podcast hit about how it's talked about like we're going to hit serial again just because it's the big elephant in the room and as far as true crime podcast it had podcasts about itself right. that explained things you might have missed in the podcast 
Uh, and so, like, you know, there's all we have uh, to go with the Fall of a Titan things. We have a ton of uh, descriptions of things and, and, like, slightly extended interviews that we have and even drawings of the crime scene uh, because, obviously, we, we can't get the photo from the police. Uh, but, yeah, it's it's those little extra bits that you get that kind of can really take it up a notch and, that, and that'll create that that buzz that kind of supersedes the just the listening experience itself. Yeah, for sure. Excellent. Well, I think that's it for us t- this time. Thank you so much. If you want to get at Jarrell Harris, find him at? At underscore Jarrell Harris, J-A-R-R-E-L Harris. All right, Charlotte? I'm at The Wilder Things. And I'm at J-A Mosho 998. I'm Harry Swartout. That's at Harry Swartout on Twitter. Up next, movies. All right, we've got movies. We're going around sharing our best sports movies from the past year. I'm Harry Swartout, podcast guy at Sports Illustrated. Hey guys, Luis Miguel Echegaray, head of Latino content, co-host of Planet Football. Dave Scipioni, I'm a social media producer here at Sports Illustrated. I am Ben Baskin. I am a staff writer with the magazine, focusing mostly on the NFL, but also movies. All right, and the first movie we're going to deal with is the 250-pound Russian boxer in the room, Creed II. Victor Drago, son of Ivan Drago, who infamously killed Apollo Creed, appeared today to issue a challenge to Adonis Creed. Don't do this. I ain't got a choice. That's the same thing your father said, and he died right here in my hands. Ben, tell us about Creed II. Well, Creed II is the latest iteration in the never-ending Rocky franchise. It's 42 years after the original Rocky came out. It's the 14th highest grossing franchise of all time up there with the superheroes and the anthologies. And after Creed won by Ryan Coogler and Michael B. Jordan rebooted the franchise in 2015, um, it was pretty much an inevitability that there would be a sequel. Um, but Creed II uh, was... A very, you know, worthy sequel. It brings back Ivan Drago from the Rocky IV lore. The movie, it kind of does really well what the Creed one set up. It's a very much in the same spirit, the same ethos as the Rocky movies, just based alone on the fact that it is a, you know, an underdog story about boxing. But it's a very different, you know, setup. It's a different culture. It's, you know talking to a different audience and a new generation. Um, and if you liked Creed 1, and I'm sure anyone who saw Creed 1 would like Creed 1, I believe Creed 2 is 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 definitely in your wheelhouse, and I would definitely recommend people to go see it. It has some of the more visceral boxing scenes. They really do a lot of cool stuff with camera angles, but also it's you know they really have a lot of poignant uh, sort of emotional scenes as well, and they really spend a lot of time on building that narrative of the family um, and sort of the interpersonal dynamics. That is my spirit. Uh, on on Creed too. Any, I'll take questions now from the esteemed panel. So as the Rockies progress, they get more ridiculous, bigger, more candy coated. Creed one was kind of in the Rocky one mold, a little bit more contained, a little bit quieter, and more introspective. Does Creed two like the original Rocky two kind of like up the ante? Does it kind of broaden it out and make it a little bit more crazy? I. 100% agree with that sort of analysis of the the Rocky progression through the years. Um, and it worked for a long time in Rocky history. Each Rocky sequel was 
did better box office wise than its predecessor up until Rocky Five, which Rocky fans pretend didn't exist. As you said, Creed One was very much like Rocky One, and that's pretty partly because it's an origin story, like Rocky was. It's an inevitability sort of that you have to sort of up the ante, and that was really Stallone's doing for Creed Two in the sense that when he passed, uh, you know, he he wrote the original script for the sequel um, after Ryan Coogler couldn't do the movie because of time constraints. Um, And Stallone's big thing in this was he wanted to have a real villain again. Creed didn't really have that real villain. So his idea was, I want a real villain in this. And that's how you get Drago back. So just by the fact that you're going to bring Ivan Drago back with his son, Victor, you know, you're kind of getting a little bit more into the Rocky sequel world where things get amped up a little bit. Yeah, Ben, aside from the fact that this is an underdog story, it's the African-American perspective, and at its core, it's about Adonis looking for a father figure. Well, I'm glad you brought that part up because, you know, self-plug alert, I have 5,000 words that I wrote about pretty much that exact talk. Yeah, of- and you guys need to read that, by the way. It's excellent. <laughs> it's It really is, and it's that's not a, you know, by accident. They, they did want to make it a very real African-American story, and um, Stephen Capel Jr., who's the director of the second Creed, very much wanted to take that mantle as well and, and run with that, which I talked with him at length about. We discussed the fact that, you know, he and Michael B. Jordan and Ryan Coogler and Tessa Thompson have had extensive discussions about how to stay true to, you know, their roots and their culture and create a movie that was felt very real for a new audience. Yeah, you know, I haven't actually seen this movie yet. Um, And since I work on social media, what I have noticed is a lot of people calling out the acting performances. Uh, Aside from some of the bigger name actors or some of the people that you thought were going to really deliver, you know, what were some of those surprise performances or were there any acting things that you that kind of stood out that ma- made you really, you know, surprised that these guys are actually like well formed? I think that the guy who played Victor Drago, who is um, similar setup to um, Dolph back years ago, Victor was a, a boxer in, you know, fighting in a, a German league that had never acted before. He had a lot of power in his performance and he told me he was actually using some personal memories of, you know, some family stuff that he had dealt with in the back of his mind as he acted, which made it kind of, you could feel like he kind of felt tormented um, as a character. So I, I and, and they told me, I wouldn't be, you shouldn't be surprised if you see Victor Drago come back in the next movie as a sort of Apollo Creed villain turned friend sort of setup. Don't be surprised, heard it here first. All right, that was Ben Baskin for Creed 2. That's in theaters now. Luis Miguel Ishigarai. What do you have for us? One particular little piece uh, project movie that I saw recently, which is available on Netflix right now, is um, a, a movie called First Match. I told you about coming around here. Coming for wrestling practice if you're so nosy. I never heard of no girls wrestling on no boys, team. Come see for yourself. Which is by a director, Olivia Newman. Um, it's from, you know, it's it's a, it's her first feature from the original short that she uh, produced it was eventually won the audiences award at South by Southwest this this year, and it's about uh, a teenager in still ungentrified Brownsville in Brooklyn, uh, and it's um, her unlikely journey into wrestling, into high school wrestling, and how she goes through all this. Um, sort of tribulations and obstacles in order to really relate to her father, who is an ex-convict, uh, leaves prison but doesn't tell her. 
she leaves, you know, she's living in foster homes and they have this uh, meeting uh, just in the street casually. And it's basically the thread of the story is aside from the fact that she goes through this all boys wrestling journey, she's really trying to connect with her father uh, who eventually ends up trying to get her into um, illegal boxing. And, you know, there's there there's those caveats in there. But at its core is about this girl living in Brownsville who's trying to find her way and the acceptance of her father's love. It's not a perfect movie because I think in many ways it's and it's no, it's. I don't think there's a fault here through Olivia Newman. I think she does a tremendous job trying to create the storyline, especially from a female perspective. But because, um, and I think this is important to say, because Olivia Newman herself is not African American, I think that it, although we see much of the, you know, the thread and and, and the great use of the storyline within, from you know her struggles with wrestling and her father, um, you know, the it would have been interesting to see sort of a more biographical perspective, you know, in terms of identity. I, of course, trust your movie judgment, Louise. Google is uh, IMDb page. It's amazing. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> Please do. But my cue is, you know, 30 things high, 30 things deep. If you had to convince somebody, maybe who's not necessarily interested to really want wh- why they should watch this film, what would you say to them? One of the issues, I think, with many sports movies is that we get lost in the sort of grandiosity of, of the underdog story from the sporting perspective. But this is about the underdog of a human being and what she has to go through. And if anything, to me, I'm just the biggest cheerleader for main characters that are driven by young women of color. And you know we're seeing that more and more often, but when you have somebody that gives a tremendous performance because the script is not perfect, she just delivers. If you want to see a performance by a young African-American actress, this is the one to watch. Really, this movie belongs to Elvira Emanuel. I think you brought up a really interesting point where you said that the director, Olivia Newman, is white and the characters are African-American. I do think that's is, it does bring up some challenges and there are some times where, you know, the, there'll be a disconnect there. What made you kind of bring that up? I think that Olivia actually talked about it in a few interviews. And one of the things that she said was um, how much she related to the main character in terms of... Um, you know, living in a male-dominated world, trying to, especially, you know, she's a filmmaker herself, you know, uh, obviously a minority as a female filmmaker, uh, trying to live up to the standards of, you know, a sort of patriarchy that already exists amongst. Uh, so she tried to translate that within the story about this young woman who's who goes into pretty much a real male-dominated sport and try to, you know, do something out of it. How did you stumble upon this? Did you find it on Netflix? Did you go out and seek it? Did somebody just say, hey, you should see this? Yeah, you know, it's a good question, actually, because you know what's funny? I used to coach high school soccer, and I'm still friends with a lot of high school coaches. um, And one of them, their um, significant other, is a a wrestling coach. And uh, she's actually an African-American woman. And she told me to to, to check this out just because, you know, she knows that I'm in the sports industry. Uh, I, I would never have, like, Noticed it, like you said, Harry, you know, we get lost in this maze of Netflix projects that you just don't know where to go. Uh, And, you know, I pay attention to South by Southwest every year. I I like to see what's going on. But this year, I I, got to say, admit that I lost my track with it. But when I found out that it was Olivia Newman doing it and they won this South by Southwest Audience Award and it was sort of selected via Netflix distribution, I, I, I was intrigued. 
there's always going to be an obstacle, I think, when a project just specifically goes through Netflix and then it gets lost in this maze of, of you know, you're not going to see it. You know, so it's very difficult to try and market this, but that's how I found it, and it, it was tremendous. Luis Miguel Ishigarai for First Match. That's available on Netflix right now. Skip, what do you got? All right, my movie, and I might butcher the title. I'm really glad Luis is here. It's NL Septimo Dia, which is translates to On the Seventh Day. Jose, here's the deal. I need everyone on Sunday. I have a private party after brunch on Sunday. These are important people coming in here. I need all hands on deck. Thanks, Jose. Very good, my friend. That was excellent. Thank you. Uh, and this is one of my favorite movies uh, of the year, to be honest with you. Um, uh, it's a story about, um, it actually was released in 2017, but it came to America in 2018, so kind of is one of those ones that won some awards and got some notoriety, and um, the way I stumbled upon it was my girlfriend said, hey, you like soccer, let's go to the soccer movie. They filmed it in Brooklyn, you were going to really like it. Um, and we went to the theater and we saw it, and what's unique about it is it's a story about um, Mexican immigrants, undocumented Mexican immigrants, who form a soccer team and play once a week on Sunday. Now, a lot of these guys work six days a week. They have multiple jobs. They're street vendors. They're delivery men. And they come together on Sunday to play a soccer match. And basically, that's their one escape from the harshness of being an undocumented immigrant in America. And the great part about the movie is it's not just the, the soccer that's filmed. I mean, that's awesome to watch, too. It's watching this team of uh, guys come together and really support each other. Um, the struggles that they go through are real. And what's unique about it from my perspective is I see these people every day when I walk uh, the streets of New York City. And sometimes you just see people and you sort of just assume, oh, this is the guy delivering me my pizza. This is the guy doing this. I wonder what they're doing with their real lives, You know what their real life is like. Um, this movie was really, really touching in the, fact, in the sense that um, the, the, the decision comes down to this, this, this best player on their team. Um, Jose is the, definitely the best player, and uh, they need him to play in the, uh, the final. Their team actually makes the finals, and it's the biggest match of the season, obviously, but uh, Jose has um, something else on his mind. He is boss, who's pretty straightforward um, and owns a restaurant. Uh, it tells him it's all hands on deck, and he needs him to work on Sunday, which is his one day off. And basically, the decision comes down to it's either my job or I'm going to go play this game with my friends. It's my one escape. And it's also weighted by the fact that Jose's wife is in Mexico, and she he's trying to bring her into America. And the boss has sort of vaguely promised that he could help along, you know, help with that process. So the struggle really becomes where do you, how do you get this guy to be in two places at once? Uh, what I ended up learning throughout the film was the struggle of undocumented immigrants is very, very real. The decisions to do things that we might take for granted every day, they are more weighted for them than anybody that I know. And I was just moved by the by the film. One of the things that is tough in a movie where, like this one, there's you know a certain amount of soccer that needs to be shown and a certain amount of soccer that you have to have versus the you know the rest of the kind of the the actual plot moving elements was there any shorthand that they used to show how much soccer meant to him without necessarily having to show him being playing soccer all the time yeah i mean i think that's the greatest part about the movie too is the cinematography really gets hyped up about this film uh jim mckay is the director and the cinematography in it really it cuts back and forth from soccer to you know the streets of Brooklyn. It was filmed in Brooklyn. It takes place in six days. So the story is very short in terms of you're not going, you know, over years and years of film. It's basically just a six day story. And 
you're you're getting snippets of soccer you're getting snippets of people of it, it really does feel like if you've ever played on a sporting team before you get that i'm interested actually to hear your thoughts on what you thought specifically on how mckay sort of tells the story is it a a movie that's trying to get you to empathize to the point where it's a, a victimized situation or is it be a, a, a place a story where you know this is something like you said that many don't know and it's really about you know the protagonist who's played by this kid um, you know who's trying to make this decision yeah I didn't get that sense of it and I mean I thought McKay did a great job of that I mean what's what's interesting about this film is he took all non-actors these are people that live in Brooklyn uh, Mexican actors Latino actors that live in Brooklyn and he doesn't he doesn't play the victim card as much and I think that's what's unique about it I think what's what's cool is that everybody can kind of put themselves in this situation even if you're not an undocumented immigrant you know sometimes you want to do something you want to you, you have a big match with a friend or something or you have something going on that you want to go and see or do and your boss says hey something just came up it's your career or it's your fun and your family and whatever and you you know a lot of us can make those decisions just oh I'll be okay I have savings in the bank I have this and that these guys don't and um, I didn't get the sense that he was he was creating like a, this victim sensation around it. It was more of just this is real life. So I'm also glad you put this movie into my mind. I didn't know it existed, but I I'm a big soccer fan, and what I've always sort of thought when and, and I might be completely off here, but I do believe that there's something connected to the fact that there is a paucity of soccer movies in this country. Football has, you know, remember the Titans. It has any given Sunday. There's football movies. Baseball has way too many movies with Field of Dreams and Paul Durham. And uh, boxing has a million movies from Rocky to um, Raging Bull. Every, you know, a lot of all these things, all these sports have movies where soccer has, you know, Bend It Like Beckham and the Will Ferrell movie, Kicking and Screaming, which, by the way, is a underrated Will Ferrell movie. But, <laughs> but I'm interested. And do you think this movie will work getting fans that maybe don't appreciate soccer or don't think about soccer to watch the movie and say hey you know this is an interesting sport or maybe I'll give it a chance Do you think it has any chance of of serving that role yeah I know you know for me I, I'm glad you kind of brought that up because I was thinking of the movie Green Street Hooligans when I mm. saw that I know that kind of gets you know people make fun of that quite a bit I like that movie a lot I do like that movie and because it was I came from the same boat as you where I'm I love you know I didn't really know much about the about, about soccer in terms of like you know overseas and that gave me this the sense of what soccer really means to not just players but to fans themselves and the communities around it and and really what the sport galvanizes people to do um, whether good or bad and I think if you go to this movie if you, if you go in with an open mind and you kind of sit down and you just watch it for what it is the story is so captivating that the story will compel you to keep watching but the soccer in and of itself is genuine like the the the, the filming of the soccer the way the players talk to each other the way they interact um, it, it definitely does give you a sense of like oh here this is what soccer in these little sub communities in America is like um, I was fortunate enough to uh, see some of this when I lived in San Francisco and uh, uh, when I was working there and you know you see these guys every Sunday or, or or Saturday playing these league scrimmage games and you or pickup games and you wonder you know how do they form these teams where do these guys come from you know can I actually play with them or how, how it actually gets gets to you know an actual match um, so if you're interested in how that story uh, plays out 
they do a great job of showing you that as well. By the way, side note, I'm very happy to hear that Ben Baskin is a huge soccer fan. Like, I never even knew that. That's amazing. So I'm going to give you a list of soccer movies to watch, and then you're going to tell me what you think. I love, I, I'm going to watch love, them all. I love finding out all these things that Baskin's a huge mm. soccer fan. I, I love, love some soccer. Don't just share it with Baskin. Tweet that out. <laughs> no. People need to know. Just me. No, just that's true. We got it. We, uh, we got to get it out. Everyone, I want everyone in America on the soccer bandwagon because I've already predicted 2026 USA World Cup. It's on the home turf. We're taking it home. Some some hot takes on the pod. <laughs> yeah, what? right. That's gonna be I in my. I'm gonna be in my mentions. That was Dave Skip Scipioni with N El Septimo Dia. I have a movie that, like all the movies that we've talked about before, honestly, there's not a, t- a ton of the sport in it. It's not made up of the sport, but it is so important. It's Minding the Gap, which is a documentary uh, by Bing Liu. I always felt like I didn't fit in with my family. My parents ran this very controlling house. I ran away a lot. Skateboarding is more of a family than my family. But it is amazing. It compiles 12 years of footage. And basically, this kid, Bing, is a skater, and he has his skater friends, and he films them from when they were just kids, right? Kind of teenagers dicking around skating, uh, to where they are later in life. And it's not like a 7-Up kind of thing where you check in on these people every few years and you're like, oh, what do you do now? I'm, I'm an accountant or whatever. That's not really what it's like. It kind of focuses on, on, on abuse, on different kinds of abuse. Um, there's substance abuse. One of the characters, uh, Zach Mulligan, who uh, is, is one of the main f- uh, kids that he films, um, he is kind of a, an alcoholic. And you get to see that evolve throughout the piece. You also get to... Uh, see him uh, deal with he he may or may not have have hit his wife and the uh the another character Keir Johnson uh he has a, a difficult relationship with his father who he loved but did discipline him physically and then of course Bing uh his uh mother had uh the his stepfather uh abused both him and his mother and so the skating the skateboarding uh the kind of the gap that mining the gap alludes to the gapping of skateboarding is their release. It's what they do for freedom. And as far as we, we haven't actually talked a lot about how um, the sports are necessarily like filmed because, you know, obviously it's there's more important things to go on. But one of the things I absolutely love in this film, and this is for all you millennial kids grew up on Tony Hawk and all that stuff. The skating is fabulous, but it's not the kind of stuff that you're going to see in the skate videos where you you know, you know have a low-canted shot on a fisheye lens down the bottom of some stairs and a guy busts a crazy varial heel flip and maybe kisses the rail. That's not what this is. This is a beautiful tracking shot because Bing's a skateboarder too, so he's following them on a skateboard. They last an amount of time which I th- find a little bit insane because they have to not fall for that amount of time. They go all over the town of uh, Rockford, Illinois, which is a kind of struggling economic town, which, again, leads to some of the other things in the piece. But the streets are empty. There's no one ever there. And all they do is just these beautiful tracking shots of they'll ollie up curbs. They'll do wall rides. They'll do, you know, grind tricks. They will do flips, like flip tricks, not full flips, although that would be impressive. The skating is so lovingly filmed that you understand why it makes them feel free. You understand why it makes them feel like they have control, which is something that almost none of them have. So in 93 minutes, you're going to learn about these kids, understand all of the things that they're doing, see them, maybe not agree with why they're doing them, 
but you understand all of what's happening, and then you really get, by the end of it, why skating is so important to them, and why, as the film goes on, it actually the film becomes a kind of catharsis that skating was for them early. And they get a little bit more introspective, and they start you know, to kind of feel out a little bit about themselves. And so I, I cannot speak highly enough of this movie. I loved it. Any questions? I will um, say that this, you know, sounded, the topics there sound very heavy. But I do like to go into a movie knowing what I'm getting myself into um, in terms of how I'm going to come away feeling. Where is this going to leave viewers at, at the end of it? So there, there are, it does follow three different people. And I would say in a general sense... Two of them are, are positive. They will leave you feeling good about where that person is going, and one of them is n- neutral but had a negative slant throughout. Uh, so it ends kind of on a, on a little bit of a high note, but it was more de- you know, a little bit depressing throughout. That being said, they do a really smart job of, you know, and this is the luxury that this kind of documentary has, where at the end they do the classic, Zach is now uh, this and he does that, and... Um, you know, that they all seem to be at least getting better and understanding, honestly understanding what they want to do and how to do it. So I think that'll kind of set the mood for you. It's not sad. You're not going to be like, oh, bummer. Yeah. But there's, there, you're right. There are a lot of heavy themes. I think, I think you'll feel pretty good, honestly. Well, that's what I needed to hear because I, you know, I need to know those things. If I go into a movie and I'm, I'm expecting to feel good at the end and then I am just ripped to pieces at the end, I'm just, I feel cheated. Especially this time of the season, right? Exactly. Um, so, I'm I'm very intrigued by this. I definitely I'm very interested because I, I, the thing that I want to know is how much of a role does the town play in the in in the movie? I'm imagining that the town itself is a big character in the, in this movie. Definitely, and that's I was that's what I was going to say. You took the words out of my mouth. That the town really is a character, and not only do you get it in the skating shots where the town is just empty in the middle of the day, but also there's you know a bunch of of these scenes in the in the movie where they will have uh, borrowed sound from news reports saying that jobs in Rockford have you know drastically declined, and one of the characters tries to start a skate park. He builds it with his. Like, he rents the space, he builds it, and then his business partner embezzles all the money and leaves. And so it's that kind of, you know, and now it's like an empty storefront among empty storefronts. And so... Well, there you go, Ben. You know, now that, it, you know, now that it's putting him a damn for I mean, that's, the, that's, some of, that's like the biggest thing in the middle. Like I said, it gets better from there. So I'm okay with in the middle, you know? It's, it's really at the end. It's yeah. what, I'm, what I leave with is really what I need to know. But yeah, so I, I think the town is really important. And, and you know, it's, it, it's a stand-in for any town in kind of middle America, any struggling Rust Belt kind of place. You know, what I've uh, noticed in a lot of documentaries is uh, filmmakers, especially when they're, it's a documentary about their story, um, uh, they attempt to make themselves sort of invisible within that. Is it one of these things where he's a present character and, he, and you're getting the sense that um, he's a part of this story? Or is it one of these things where he's telling this story from like an outsider perspective and you're not really getting the sense that he's actually a part of it? He's actually a bigger part of the story than it seems at the very beginning because he starts with introducing the other two characters. So there's a, a like I, I'd say a 20 minute chunk where he's not really there. But he actually does do, he, he is a big part. He has people mostly talk about him because of okay. course he's behind the camera. But there are scenes where they do shoot him and in fact when he's interviewing his mom, which is really raw interview. 
they ha- uh, they have a reverse shot on him, which is not how most of the movie is filmed. Most of the movie is single camera. And they have this reverse shot on him, and it's really, you know, he was not afraid to put his own emotion in this film. You can tell that it's hard, not just for his mom, but also for him. He does a lot of, you know, uh, putting his hands on his face, and, and really, and you can tell he's struggling with it. Um, and then, of course, there's the archival footage, like the, I mean, not archival, obviously, but like the, the footage that he shot when they were all young kids, and he's in that a lot. But he's, you feel him as a character, and he's really important to how the other characters interact with everything from skating to, you know, just him being in the room slightly changes what they do. So he's he's not necessarily on screen as much as the other guys are, but he's a super important character, and you do get a feel of who he's like, what he's doing, and why he's important to the story. Anyway, that will be it for us on this episode. I'm going to tell you all how to reach these people on social media. I'm at Harry Swartout on Twitter. Mine's a long one. I'm at LM. E-C-H-E-G-A-R-A-Y. I'm sorry, I have a Spanish last name, all right? So I'm not really going to apologize that much. <laughs> and, I mean, if you can't get it, just Google it. Skip? Uh, at Dave Scipioni, you can be one of my 500 followers. <laughs> and, Ben, we, we need yours because Luis is going to tweet all of those soccer movies at you. <laughs> I am Ben underscore Baskin. B-A-S-K-I-N. Not as long as Luis's, but, you know, follow us all. Thanks, guys. And when we come back, we're hitting the books. All right, let's dive into books. Around the table, we have Ben Teitelbaum, who's the SI Now showrunner. Ben. Hello, Harry. Thanks for being here. Pleasure to have you. I am also joined by Jamie Lasanti, the special projects editor here at SI. Hi, Harry. How you doing? Great. And Stanley Kay, SI's news director. Thanks for having me on, Harry. And he's a noted Arsenal fan wearing a, a really... Spiffy shirt today. Very spiffy. So let's start off with Ben. Ben, what have you given us today? I have given you Basketball and Other Things by Shea Serrano. It is maybe the best book ever written by anybody in the history of the English language. Uh, Yes, that is hyperbole, but that is one thing Shea dabbles in just so beautifully. Basketball, especially in the age of the internet, is just so fun. The personalities we get, the way the players interact with fans, the debates that are generated. And this book basically takes everything that you love about basketball debate and condenses it into a very fun format, a very beautiful format. There are awesome illustrations, awesome pictures. If you love footnotes like I do, they're like dozens of absurdly entertaining footnotes, which are great because like... I want to know, oh, but how did we get that piece of information? Or I kind of want to go on a tangent. And it just, it gives all of that to me. It's like having all the inane hoops adjacent conversations that you have with your basketball loving friends, only if those friends were like the funniest people on earth and had the deepest reservoirs of knowledge. So that's why I love it. All right. Now, I've I've read basketball and other things. and I really enjoyed it too. But the way I was turned on to it is I follow Shay Serrano, the author of the book, on all the social medias. He's, as you said, a very funny guy. But he's kind of a, a little bit of a cult of personality type of guy. A lot of his people, like, ride for the FOH army and all that stuff that he's he's kind of himself established. Would people who haven't necessarily, you know, joined his cult like this book as much as, say, I did? You know how they say there's a reason cliches are cliche because it's true? I kind of believe that with some cult of personality people in the current age. There's a reason they get tons of followers. And when you get exposed to them, it's sort of hard not 
to want to bask in their glow. I, I think Shay's like that. And the best thing about the book is there's something for everyone. You don't need to read it in chronological order. You can skip complete chapters that you have no interest in it. And because you don't need to crank it out in one sitting or chronologically, great for the coffee table, the bedside, of the subway, and for picking up again and again. Why do you think basketball is the most fun sport? I, I think, and we talk about the reason why basketball players have higher Q scores than any other athletes in the world you know and there's all the reasons we've heard before part of it is that you can see all their faces you can get up close and personal basketball is the type of sport where there there are five men it both engenders teamwork but also individuality in a way that allows personal personalities to grow on and off the court if you had to say for for a running back not only what is their style or personality on the field but off it's often hard to get. You just don't get time with someone like that. You know it for not just the NBA All-Stars, but all sorts of random characters in the league. The one thing that struck me, I'm flipping through this book, and it just looks, besides the illustrations, it definitely looks like all over the place. There's like charts, and as you said, like footnotes, and there's like seven different fonts. It's like very crazy. Do you feel like it helped the book? Do you feel like more books should be written in this format? Like it, it feels a little jarring for someone who's used to and going to talk about like a very traditional novel. Sure. Part of it is sort of the id of people in the internet age. Part of it is uh, maybe just the way I process things. But like I'm a jump arounder and I could see why for some people who like to stick to the traditional narrative format, it could be a little bit chaotic. But I think we're all sort of used to that a little bit in the modern age. And it's interesting to transpose what we often see in technology onto the format of a book. But to me, I think it works. For sure. And it works for basketball, too, which is, as you were saying, super fun. All right. So that was Ben Teitelbaum recommending Basketball and Other Things by Shea Serrano. Next, we got Jamie. What do you have for us? All right. So as I said, I read something. This is completely different than Ben's book. Uh, it is called When the Men Were Gone by Marjorie Herrera-Lewis. Um, and it is about kind of the drama of high school football in Texas, which we all know Friday Night Lights in that state is just super crazy. And it is actually based on a true story. It is set in the World War II era, and it's about a teacher named Tylene Wilson, who was a real person uh, in this in this era. And she basically, while all of the men over 18, under age 45, are being sent off to war, Tylene has the knowledge and she's been playing football and with her father and kind of following the game for so long. And she has the skill and the ability to step in as a coach. But because of the time period and because she's a woman, you know, she faces a lot of ridicule and a lot of pushback uh, in trying to become the head coach of the team. And so Marjorie takes her own spin on it because it is based on a true story. It's not the true story, but she kind of faces opposition and she really has to fight against all these things and it's just a really cool story about football a powerful woman and how um you know in this world war ii era things are kind of coming together so you said it was based on a true story but it's not like the it's not the true story itself what does the fictionalization add to the story what what makes it better as a uh, historical fiction as opposed to just a, a nonfiction. Right. So I actually spoke with Marjorie and asked her about how she discovered the story and everything. And she did a ton of research into she found newspaper articles and um, journals and pieces of information because Tylene was a teacher. There was kind of a lot to be found on her, um, but there was not enough for her to 
tie together every piece of information and really tell like the full true story. So she took a lot of license in adding characters. She makes the characters come to life and you really feel like you're in that time period. Um, she does a good job of setting the scene. Um, there's a lot of things that really take you back to, uh, you know, how cars were, how the role of a woman, you know, what the household was like, what schools were like, um, and really, most importantly, what the impact of the war on the city and on a town and on, you know, high school students was. What was it like reading this book uh, in 2018, you know, this at this moment where um, women have sort of found this renewed uh, political and social clout and the Me Too uh, movement and everything like that, whether you saw similar themes that we've seen over the last few years um, in this novel, which sounds really interesting. Definitely. Yeah. So it, it it was definitely a reminder of what life was like for women back in the 1940s, 1950s and the things they faced because they weren't equal to men, which, as you said, is just been magnified even more today. Um, but back then it was that much worse. Her husband, Tylene's husband in the novel, is very supportive and he's one of the key reasons why she is able to do what she does. And for me, Tylene is an insanely powerful woman in the story. And so it was great to see her balance her role, you know, throughout this whole novel, she actually still does everything she's supposed to do uh, in terms of making dinner for her husband and maintaining the household and being a teacher and kind of doing all the things that she needs to do in, in her role in her real job. Um, so it was it was cool to see a powerful woman um, and see her split both sides of, of, you know, going against, but then also going with what she is supposed to do as a woman in that era. I read a lot of non-sports related fiction and I read a lot of sports nonfiction and I don't really read stuff like this which is a fictionalized account do you think that's sort of a blind spot in us sports people and what we consume definitely I read a lot of books that come across my desk and a lot of them are rooted in in facts you know it's a story about the greatest quarterbacks and I think you know those are great but this was awesome just because it read like a novel it was an easy read it was quick um and it was it was character driven and i think um you know she was able to take some license and make those people come to life whereas you know maybe in real life some people aren't as exciting or aren't as drama filled so um yeah it was cool i think we should definitely try and get some more books like this come across our way all right so that was Jamie Lasanti with when the men were gone by Marjorie Herrera Lewis Stanley what do you got for us yeah, my favorite sports book of the year uh, was a nonfiction book uh, by Mark Leibovich, who's one of my favorite politics writers. You guys are probably familiar with him. Uh, he wrote this book about the NFL called Big Game, The NFL in Dangerous Times. And I found this book absolutely fascinating. Um, first of all, Leibovich, a few years ago, he wrote this book called This Town, which was about Washington, D.C., and it basically eviscerated the place. He basically took the same approach uh, to the NFL, where he really sort of chronicled the behind the scenes and sort of the big show behind the NFL. And let me explain what I mean by that. Basically, he really took on the NFL owners as his subjects. It's really a book about how power works and how sort of the NFL deals with uh, various crises. It's fascinating. It's hilarious. Uh, his descriptions of NFL owners are very irreverent. Uh, for example, he calls Woody Johnson of the Jets. Uh, he says he's like an overgrown third grader who collects toy trains and rotten quarterbacks. He kind of just 
brings them down a peg. He also got wasted with Jerry Jones on the Cowboys team bus at one point and passed out. So, I mean, who has <laughs> the, the thing that I want to know is I'm a fan of NFL football, the product on the field. Not so much a fan of the NFL, the kind of the shield and the giant megalith behind it. If I read this book, will I hate the NFL more or will it kind of humanize it for me? How am I going to feel about the NFL after I'm done? I feel like it might be a little bit of both, to be honest, which I know is a weird answer. It's not like a hit book, sort of. It's not a hit piece, but it definitely doesn't make the owners or the commissioner look necessarily good. It just makes them look a little bit more incompetent, I think. He's basically making fun of everyone, and most people seem to take it in stride. You know, he makes fun of uh, the media, the Schefters of the world, who he calls nugget seekers, uh, because they, you know, they try to, you know, get their prized nuggets for Twitter, um, et cetera. And he says that the NFL resembles a swamp, which sounds pretty familiar for a political writer. But the whole book is littered with those sort of uh, little quips and, um, you know, fun observations. He's he's very good at that. I'm curious because, you know, NFL, not for long. Is there anything at the end or throughout the book that um, he says that we should look out for that's going to happen to the NFL? Or is there some sort of conclusion that he comes to that, you know, it maybe don't want to spoil the book, but I'm that's curious. That's a great question, Jamie. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I mean, a bit. I mean, he talks a lot about basically, you know, the title of the book is The NFL in Dangerous Times. And it definitely, the book is about all these powerful people, the league's power brokers, whether it's Goodell, Jerry Jones, uh, you know, powerful players like Tom Brady, Etc. and sort of like how they're dealing with this cloud of crises that's sort of hanging over the league, this sort of, um, you know, what feels often like an existential threat to football. But I think the conclusion is also that we're all addicted to this game and the league is more popular than ever. And he calls it, I don't know if I can curse on this thing, but he calls the league a beautiful shit show of a league. And that I feel like that really is emblematic of the entire book. But I think the parallels are similar to this town, his book about DC, and that both like are, you know, have all this money, power, et cetera, but you know, maybe are in some sort of long term decline. But I think football is gonna remain popular for a while. Is there anyone in there that comes off surprisingly well? Like, oh, I didn't realize that person was actually a good guy. I don't know exactly. I mean People. It's all just a big shit show. <laughs> there you go. It, 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 it is. A lot of the book is dedicated to the Patriots. Um, and I'm not a Patriots fan. And I think, I don't know if any of us in this room are Patriots not fans. Not I. Um, I know Jamie's not. <laughs> um, she's a Jets fan. The exact opposite. I'm a Dolphins fan. We got a lot of the AFCs represented here. So the Patriots uh, make up a lot of the book. And I don't think that that should be a turnoff. I think you both would still really enjoy it. And it might dare I say, even humanize the Patriots a little bit. It focuses a lot Impossible. on... I know. Brady, Belichick, and Kraft are definitely a focus. He goes to a couple of their Super Bowl games, and it honestly made me feel a little bit more inclined to like Kraft and Brady. Some of the owners I felt uh, a little bit more inclined to like after reading it. They're really just like you know rich old white guys for the most part. That was Stanley K for Big Game. Mark Levich. So I have a book that is incredibly self-explanatory in the title. It is the comic book story of professional wrestling. And it is just as bombastic as you want a professional wrestling comic book to be. 
It is huge. It, it's a like just talking about the size of the book. It is relatively large. It has beautiful candy-colored giant muscular men all throughout. It's a really fascinating art style. It's very uh, kind of pop comic. It has these kind of classic comic washes, these explosion kind of things. And uh, so it's everything you want in a comic as far as the look is concerned. But it also is full of great information about the history of pro wrestling, which I did not know anything about going into it. Uh, it's less word bubble, so it's not going to be like, I'll save you. It's going to have, you know, kind of almost like a, and this is going to sound bad, but like a textbook quality. It has a lot of explainers in it, right? So it'll explain, like, the beginning of pro wrestling was carnivals, right? You had your big strong man, and they would have contests to see who could beat him in a contest of strength and who could out-wrestle him. And they, by the way, they were always fixed. One thing that the comic book history of professional wrestling is very clear on, always fixed. Always has been fixed. Never a real sport. Uh, but it is the one true sport because what makes a sport even better is being scripted. So it, it definitely deals with how it's what we would call staged, but how that makes it better to watch, which I think makes sense, right? Why have a boring game when you can have a good game? It goes all the way through from uh, the Carnival Origins, like I said, with like Martin Farmer Brown, who, uh, as I learned, is along with being a wrestling, an early wrestling adopter, also had a uh, Carnival Sideshow act where he was dropped six feet and hung by the neck while whistling Yankee Doodle. So yeah, there's that for you. It goes through the uh, territorial times with the National Wrestling Association, which was from 1948 to the 1980s. And that's kind of like uh, every little region had their own professional wrestling circuit. Uh, it goes right up through, you know, the, the modern era and the attitude era and all the things that if you grew up loving wrestling in the 90s and you love The Rock and, you, you know, that's your thing, there's tons on that too. Um, each section ends with a great explainer. So, like I said, not a necessarily a wrestling person, but there's a great little helpful sheet at the end of Chapter 2 where it explains all of the terminology they're using. What is kayfabe? What is getting something over on somebody? What is a jobber, right? So that when they're talking about it later on, you understand what they're actually saying. In a more important kind of way, it also is a, an unbiased history because uh, at the end, it has a very recent thing about the CTE problems that a lot of former wrestlers are having. So it is a beautiful, smart, and really detailed, but still at the same time being fun, look at the entire history of professional wrestling. And I highly recommend it. So full disclosure, I'm not really a wrestling fan and I'm not really a comic book fan so why should someone like me be interested in this book so I think one of the things that the the book does so well is make sure that even if you don't care about the outcomes of wrestling matches and who the stars are you can see the phenomena of what is truly like an American sport evolve throughout time and and how it mirrors in a lot of ways um, what business was going on too because you've got you know kind of like small mom and pop organizations that lead to these giant conglomerates like WCW, WWE slash WWF. So you can find these kind of through lines all the way. When you were talking, I noticed a lot of through lines between uh, the NFL and wrestling. Uh, and one of the things Leibovich talks about in Big Game is sort of how all of these um, sideshow controversies like Deflategate are still entertainment they still serve to entertain so even if they're quote-unquote bad it's still like basically all part of the spectacle did you notice a lot of 
similarities between the NFL, which I know you're a fan of, and uh, pro wrestling and their evolution and sort of the whole spectacle of it? Oh, yeah. So I'm actually a defunct sports league historian as well. So not just the NFL, but all of the leagues, the USFL, the WFL that have come before it. And you have a lot of those kind of same interplays in wrestling. So like I was saying, WCW and WWE slash F, uh, from now I'm just going to call it WWE, they were rival leagues and they would steal players, in this case wrestlers. And that kind of had this kind of inverse effect is what you would think, even though they're getting these talents, much like, say, the uh, WFL did when they poached Larry Zonka from the NFL. They kind of overplayed their hand. They overspent, which allowed the WWE to kind of get and do new things and find new wrestlers and pull them up, create new stars for cheaper. But yeah, if if you're into like off the field drama, there's no shortage. I, like Ben, am not a huge wrestling fan, but I wanted to ask you about the slang. Assuming that most of the slang and the words and the phrases being used in the book are similar from that time period and from that place, can you give us kind of a few that maybe we should know or that are kind of really interesting? Um, I'm I'm curious. Sure. So I think the the biggest kind of carnival one is to get someone something over on somebody. In this case, it would be the audience. So in a carnival, uh, if you are showing a you know a fake mermaid that you have cobbled together from taxidermied parts, but the audience believes that you have gotten it over on them. But I also love uh, a jobber is one of my favorite uh, in there also, and that is somebody whose job is to lose. You do, you, and it's called doing your job. So when you are wrestling, there's a predetermined winner and a predetermined loser. The path, how they get to that, not always laid out perfectly all the way through. But there is somebody who's designated to lose. And usually it's kind of the same people again and again and again. You have your stars that win a lot, and you know sometimes they'll lose for you know rematch purposes. But I always just I feel I feel that uh, people who root for the underdogs will love the jobbers who go out there and valiantly get their butts whooped all the time. Uh, so that's what we have for today. If you want to talk to Ben Teitelbaum, you can find him on Twitter at... At Ben Teitelbaum. Stanley K is on Twitter at... Citizen underscore K. And Jamie's on Twitter at... J.D. Lasanti. I'm Harry Swartout. That's at Harry Swartout on Twitter. And that's it for this one, guys. I hope you found some sports pop culture that you can enjoy this holiday season. Thank you so much, everybody. about the Locked On Podcast Network, the number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.
At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.